In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, welcome to the Michelle Mission, Two Men, One Podcast, every black film ever made. My name is Len, a.k.a. the Bat Tribble. Hello. And as always, I'm joined by my partner. He's down there. Hey, this is Vincent Williams. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we are doing a review that you, the listeners, has been asking for pretty much... Since we started the mission, we oh, are going yeah. to the year of 1970 to review director Hal Ashby's directorial debut. It is Bo Bridges, Lou Gossett, Pearl Bailey, Michelle Mission favorite Melvin Stewart, Lee Grant, and the grossly underappreciated Diana Sands. In yes, Lord. The Landlord. Yes. But as much as you have requested this, listeners, we're not reviewing it because you requested it. We're reviewing it because our very special guest tonight decided this is the movie that he wanted to see. And this was the movie that he wanted to review tonight on the Michelle Mission. So, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Scribe Video Center's very own Marcellus Armstrong. What's up, Marcellus? Hey, Marcellus. Hey, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I'm really excited to be here with you, Lynn and Vince, um, to discuss one of my favorite films, uh, The Landlord. Okay. And I'm doing good today. Um, usually I like I like films that have very little meat to pick at. Like, uh, I think we've had a conversation about Tyler Perry and set it off. <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I I really love this film, so I thought that it would be a good one to kind of bring to Michelle Mission. Okay, so excellent. You. Looking forward to this. We are definitely looking forward to it, and thank you to each and every one of you who are taking the time to uh, check us out live on YouTube and in Facebook. Hey, Deborah Battle, Aaron Fry, we see you. Hello, how you doing? Good evening, folks. Um. Marcellus, we're going to take some time before we get into the review to get into your story, but we're going to ask you to um, sit back, relax, and act like you've been here before as we get into a little bit of listener mail. Vince, we've got an email. All right. Uh, Let's see. We received an email. Let me bring this up for you, Vince, from longtime listener Sherry D., Hey, what's up, Sherry D? Why? Oh, why is this not coming up? Hold up. I'm going to bring it up over here. This is not coming up over there. There we go. Okay. Uh, 
the subject line is the well and sport flicks. Okay. All right. Hey, Lennon Vince. Thanks for your review of The Well. I enjoyed your conversation about it. Ultimately, Hollywood, at any point in time, really, will give us those how the white folks coped movies about race. But I thought that this film, uh, bless his 1951 heart, tried to give us a look (laughs) and feel into both sides of the race issue. Um, Are you familiar with the movie The Well, Marcellus? I am not familiar with the movie The Well. It is from 1951. It is actually a movie that is about a young black girl who um, falls down a well and the ensuing confusion that uh, sparks in this small town as people try to reconcile with what happened with her. It's a slept on film from 1951 um, that... It, it, while it has some trappings of its time... Right. It's, it's a relic of its time, but still... But but still, it is yeah. it is quite the achievement, uh, yeah. and pretty audacious. Uh, check it out; is it the whole okay. film is on uh, on yeah. YouTube, so you should check it out. All right. Another okay. film that the missionaries recommended. All right, yes, I will. Mm-hmm. I will uh, check that out. Shari D continues. In your episode, you mentioned that there's a document. There's to be a documentary on Colin Kaepernick. I'm not a sports person either, Vincent. But I think I'd watch it. There are some sports docs and movies that I've liked. I have enjoyed quite a few of those 30 for 30 ESPN documentaries. Great stories. Absolutely. Recently, I rewatched a very good sports flick. Uh, do you remember The Fan from 1996 starring Robert De Niro, Wesley Snipes, Ellen Barkey, oh, yeah. and Benicio Del Toro, as well as John Leguizamo? De Niro plays a psychotic fan who goes to violent extremes to show his sick sick obsession with star baseball player Snipes. I think I like the cast of this one more than the story, but it's a good story. Another sports movie I liked back in the day was Celtic Pride, also from 1966. I just looked it up. Boston Celtics fanatics Dan Aykroyd and Daniel Stern kidnap a player from an imposing team, played by Damon Wayans, to ensure a Celtics win. I haven't seen that one in years. And then there's that classic sports film that I can't wait for you to review, a film that surely belongs in the Criterion Collection, Joanna Man. <laughs> I think that uh, film. I think that film single-handedly kneecapped Miguel Nunez's career. Perhaps I uh, think it th- threw him completely off path. Go ahead. By the way, none of these three f- flicks focus on race, but I'm thinking that we wouldn't consider the fan and Celtic Pride to be black films because of the cast. And that we could consider Joanna Man to be a black film because of the cast. Would you agree, or is that reasoning too simplistic? Thanks again for the great discussion on the well. Stay safe and be well. Shari D. Well, do you remember these movies, Lynn? I definitely remember The Fan. Yeah. Uh, The Fan was a... um, It's not a great movie, like she said. It's not a great movie, but and and then it, it it handles the the subject matter more seriously than Celtic Pride. But I think you have the same thing in Celtic Pride. I think you can argue they're black movies because I do think 
as someone who is not a sports ball fan, I do think that there is something really potent about the relationship between white sports fans and black athletes. Hmm. And I'd be interested to watch these films and maybe look for moments that kind of reflect that. Like I'm, I'm almost positive the fan deals with it a bit. Yeah. I was going to say, I have to say, I don't remember. I haven't watched it in years, but I feel like there was some of that energy there with, with Robert De Niro, kind of that working class sports fan, like that guy. Yeah. 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 I think there's definitely more of that at, at, at evidence in the fan than Celtics Pride. Are you familiar with either movie, uh, Marcellus? I'm not, but I would say that your argument kind of, I would say the same connection for Bring It On. Um, mm. uh, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, God. Uh, speak on it, Marcellus. <laughs> speak on it. <laughs> I mean, I just feel as though Bring It On is a very uh, analogy for cultural appropriation. And, um, you know, the the... The uh, the Compton Clovers uh, really carry that forward throughout the film, um, and yeah, and uh, I just I, bring it on could be a black film. Um, we're we're laughing because we actually had this debate what a month ago. Has it been a month? <laughs> like we had this exact same conversation. About I mean, one at the heart ago. of it, the end, at the heart of it, the end, the moral center is that, you know, you should not take from these cultures that you did not. You shouldn't. Um, <laughs> and, like, I feel like that is a very much thing that's taught within the black community. Are, and the film, the film goes out of its way to grant the Clovers agency. Yes. Like, they are in no way saved by white people. <laughs> like, Lynn, <laughs> I think, <laughs> boy, that is so funny. We, because I've been I've been right on the line about whether or not I want to fight for Bring It On. I think yeah. you should. I, uh, I now mean, for the record, Lynn's never seen it, so he doesn't even know what we're talking about. I've never seen the movie. I've never been moved to see the movie, and never in a million years that I think when the Michelle mission started that that would be the reason why I would watch Bring <laughs> Lynn, It On. I'm going to tell you like I said it before, Bring It On is one of those movies that is so much smarter than you think it is. Yeah. I told uh, you. I like movies where it's like it seems like there's not much meat on the bone but after you really get into it <laughs> Dominique Dominique says I watch Bring It On for the clover, so I would agree. Fight Vince. <laughs> Dominique, Dominique, all I does is fight. Fight, fight, fight. I fights and fights. Oh, oh Lord. Okay, okay. All right. Well, this show ain't safe for man folk. <laughs> Maybe somewhere down the line. <laughs> Maybe somewhere we'll, down the we'll, we'll yeah. watch Bring It On. Maybe bring it on as, as as a horror movie. Maybe we change change up the schedule for October, Lynn. <laughs> the terror of white appropriation. Um, <laughs> oh, oh God. Anyway, anyway, Vince, enough of you. Um, 
before, uh, th so thank you, Sherry D, and thank you each and every one of you that uh, emailed us. If you would like to send an email to us, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to email us at michellemission at gmail.com. All right, it's just that simple. Um, hey, Vince, just looking at a, a couple of things that are in the news. Did you see that there is going to be, you can appreciate this as a lover of R&B. Okay. There is, there is a documentary that Sony Pictures has swooped up for the distribution rights called Who You Gonna Call? Chronicling the life of Grammy-winning musician Ray Parker Jr., who created the smash hit song Ghostbusters. Really? Oh, God, I didn't think you would be that fired up for it. Yes. Look, look, I think Ray Parker, don't, don't, don't get me started. You know Ray Parker Jr. in radio, kind of like, like he's really kind of like the connection between like that 70s kind of, you, you know, meat and potatoes R&B and mm. that smoothed out 80s sound. Like, yeah. like radio really is the missing link in there. And, and I, I think that's, I think that's going to be really interesting. Uh, the like film, the film, which will be directed by award-winning filmmaker, Fran Strine, uh, follows Ray Parker's struggles growing up on the racially charged streets of Detroit in the 1960s, escaping violence to rise in the music industry where he toured with Stevie Wonder and the Rolling Stones at the age of 18. It then yeah. looks at his successful music career um, before getting the call, as it were, from director Ivan Reitman to write and perform the hit song for the 84 film Ghostbusters. Ray Parker Jr. wrote and performed several top 25 hits Producing and performing with such music icons, including Barry White, New Edition, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Tina Turner, Gladys Knight, Patti LaBelle, The Temptations, The Carpenters, and The Supremes. Yeah, yeah. And you know the Ghostbusters story. You know the actual Ghostbusters story. They uh they wanted to hire Huey Lewis oh, to write a right. theme song, and I think I think and don't and and don't don't quote me because I'm not a Huey Lewis dude, but I think the song was "I Want a New Drug," and yes, they said was. they they told Huey Lewis we want something that sounds like "I Want to Do a New Drug," and Huey Lewis said he didn't want to do it, so then they went to Ray Parker Jr. And, and said, Ray Parker Jr., like. can you make a song that sounds like I want a new drug? And then now we get into the legalities of whether or not Ghostbusters sounds like it. But Huey Lewis sued him. Yeah. And, I, and either won or got some type of settlement. I so, think he got a settlement on it. Yeah, it's a pretty a interesting story in and of itself. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that, that should be fun. Uh, uh, Sony Pictures will be distributing that so look for that um somewhere soon vince all right, all right. And, and marcellus are you a ghostbusters fan or you're a ray parker jr fan uh i would say <laughs> that i have not watched ghostbusters in a really long time but i am a Me fan neither. of the musical legacy of detroit so yeah. there you go okay well there you go 
There you go. It's, and that's interesting that you're a, mu- a fan of the music. Well, I think we all, by way of, if, if nothing else, Motown, are fans of the musical le- legacy of Detroit. But that's interesting that you say that, considering that if I remember correctly, you share a hometown with one Vincent Williams because you call oh. Bal- Baltimore your hometown. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Are you? Yeah, I'm more. Of, I'm, I'm from the county though, so. So am uh, I. I'm okay. from. I'm from Woodlawn. Where are you from? Owens Mills. Really? Now we got to ask each other the Baltimore questions. <laughs> what high school did you go to? I went to Owens Mills High School. Okay, excellent. Yeah, yeah. homeboy. Yeah, Very what, nice. What high school did you go to? Mount St. Joe. Uh, okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah, is, excellent. Is that high school even still still around? What St. Joe? Yeah. Oh come on, St. Joe's forever. <laughs> St. Joe's I forever. I, know. I mean, you know, come on, it was stop. Back, it was back before fire when you went. Come so on, I didn't know whether come on. Yeah, eighteen seventy six to this exact second. Mount St. Joseph Preparatory School for Boys is going nowhere. <laughs> that, that sounds fighting like, that gales. Sounds, that sounds like the title of a really creepy Netflix horror movie. <laughs> well. <laughs> Okay, Lynn, this is your fault. What was what was the name of the um of the documentary on Netflix? I just lost the name about the abuse in in the in the Catholic school. What? Everybody was watching it like a year ago. I don't know. I didn't watch it. <laughs> anyway, it was my sister's school. It was my sister's school. Oh, geez. yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh. Who am I? What, what am I talking about, you all? I was trying to see if the let's see, let's see, let's see if they're mentioning it in the um, in the comments. It was uh, the big documentary. It was on like like a year ago. The big documentary was was Tiger King. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, no, no. It was like a year Tiger ago. Tiger King was abusing girls too. He was killing tigers and abusing girls. I can't believe I forgot the name of the documentary. Anyway, it was about my sister's school. Archbishop Kia. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. Um, I mean, you know, it well, gets no creepy. way to segue away from that. Yet I'm surprised. <laughs> I blame story. you. I blame you for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> next story. Um, on a lighter note, uh, Walt Disney- basically anything. Basically anything is a lighter note. <laughs> um, Walt Disney. Has, uh, has um, set Oscar winner Barry Jenkins. The the documentary was called The Keepers, Vince. Yes. You don't remember when everyone was talking about The Keepers? No. Last no, year? No. no. Yeah. That was my no. sister's school. Thank you, James Girl 0512 yes. on, on YouTube. That's right. It was The Keepers. All right. But Barry Jenkins, Lion King. Yes, uh, the Walt, Walt Disney Studios has set Oscar winner Barry Jenkins to direct the studio's follow-up to the 2019 blockbuster The Lion King. Uh, it will also, like the, that film, be written by Jeff Nathanson, and it, who's already completed an initial draft of the script, uh, as a matter of fact. The film will continue with the photorealistic doc, uh, technology that director John Favreau used in that film, as well as in the Jungle Book. There's no release date set yet, but it is understandably a top priority 
for Disney after the last film grossed $1.6 billion worldwide. Wow. The remake? Oh, yeah. The, the remake was a monster of a hit, dog. Wow. I take it you did not take uh, Camille to see. No, no. She went to see that with her friend. Her her little girlfriend. Because, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the photorealistic live action Disney joints. But apparently, I'm the only one. (laughs) That's with Beyonce, right? Yeah, that's with Beyonce. Yeah, that was one with Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Did you see it, Marcellus? I did not. I just, I just have heard that it's very hard to get into the movie because every time you hear Beyonce's voice, it's, it's, you can't remove that voice from the actual character. That's, that's what I've heard. I will say, I will say that Beyonce's voice uh, does take you out of it a little bit, um, and also, and I think this is by pro- a byproduct of it being Beyonce in that role because she pr- plays Nyla in the movie. They built up Nyla's role, mm-hmm. you know, because Nyla, like Nyla, doesn't do much in the animated cartoon, but now she like has like a standoff and she's got a song, and I think that's because you know it's Beyonce, mm-hmm. so. right? Right. Now, did you see the play? Have you seen? I did. Like, I did see. I see. I did see the Lion King on stage. Yes. Do they do the Nala stuff in the movie? You know, like the, the like because she has a song in the play. Well, what I don't know because the song that she sings in the movie is an original for the movie. Okay. So okay, and, and I don't remember if Nala had a song in the on stage. I don't remember it because the stage. I'm sure the story was great, but for the most part, you know, I knew the story. I've seen the right. Lion King because the Lion King came out when my daughter was little, so I've seen the right. Lion King conservatively eight hundred times. Right, so right. Of course, I knew the story. I was just taken in by the pageantry of the. Of oh, the of course, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. Did you realize, Vince? Though that. Oh, but 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 before we move on, good for Barry Jenkins. Get that Disney money, Barry Jenkins. Yes. Get all that Disney money. <laughs> well, did you realize that this is actually, this will will be actually, the second film project that he's doing with Disney. What was the first? What was the first? He he is actually uh, it the first. It hasn't been uh, released yet, but he is working on a biopic with uh, for Fox Searchlight, which now Disney owns. Okay, um, doing a biopic of famed choreographer Alvin Ailey. Right, I'm looking forward to that. That'd I'm looking nice. forward to that a lot, actually. Yeah, that'll be really nice. Yeah. Mm, that's decent. Yeah, but, but get that Lion King money. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't be. Get a, all that money. I wouldn't be surprised if this is a matter of like, hey, we'll give you this, you know, the money to make your, your probably one of your passion projects, the bio right. Alvin Ailey, you know, you do this Lion King for us, you know? Right. And I mean, that's the way these things work. So I ain't mad at him. Get that dough. He's also got money from coming from, um, Amazon, he recently completed a limited series adaptation of Colson Whitehead's National Book Reward and Pulitzer winning yeah. The Underground Ra- Railroad. Yeah, looking forward to that a bit too. Where he uh, 
directed all of the episodes of that miniseries. Mm-hmm. And he's also scripted a drama based on the first American female Olympic boxing champ, Clarissa TX, T-Rex Shields. And it's okay. also working on an adaptation of the Netflix documentary, documentary Varunga about the battle to save the Congo's mountain gorilla population. Barry Jenkins is working. <laughs> so are you familiar with that boxer? No, I'm not. Clarissa T-Rex Shields. Um, T-Rex seems like a, a, a weird nickname for a boxer because T-Rexes have little arms. <laughs> they have little uh, arms. That, that, that is true. They, they, they do have I'm just arms. saying, that's the first thing I thought. Why is her nickname T-Rex? Does she have little arms? I, I, I don't know. Um, she is... She's held multiple world titles in three weight classes and reigned as the undisputed female middleweight champion from 2019 through September of 2020, having unified the WBA, WBC, and IBF female middleweight titles back in 2018. Um, Wow, she... she is absolutely no joke. She was the youngest boxer at the U.S. Olympic trials in 2012. Um, and she went on to become the first American woman to win an Olympic gold medal in boxing. So, All right. All right. So she's, she's no joke. I think it's because she's short. She's only five foot eight. Okay. That's kind of tall, actually. That's tall for a woman. That's about average height. Okay. I don't know. I don't know why they call it T-Rex. I don't you know. know. I'm like the only one that thought about that. I'm the only one that thought T-Rexes have little arms. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> That's my thing. <laughs> I'll take no, it's that. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's, it's, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, last little story. The Hollywood Reporter did a story um, about the uh, uh, the change in doing makeup and hair in Hollywood for black people. Um, they interviewed a number yeah. of celebrities of that time and uh, uh, um, in Hollywood now and a lot of uh, stylists and talked about how it's been changing and, and, and people are paying more attention to the makeup and, and styling in Hollywood, uh, they quote, reading from here, um, in regards to Cecily Tyson, um, because of the bad experiences she had with white makeup artists early in her career, Cecily Tyson says that she has never watched herself on screen. Wow. Because by the time we were finished, we looked gray rather than black. It was very uncomfortable to look at yourself because it just didn't look like me. Wow. Yeah. While while much has changed since Tyson came onto the acting scene during the 50s, many black actresses are still bringing their own foundations with them. And though such black shows as Insecure, Greenleaf, and Queen Sugar have fostered inclusive sets with style pros proficient in working with black hair and skin, as Gabrielle Union's recent travails uh, on America's Got Talent attests, 
To this day, actresses say that on sets with predominantly white cast, they aren't provided with hair and makeup people who know what they're doing. The fact, says Cheryl Lee Ralph, is that it is uh, that this is happening says I don't matter. It's a uh, it's, it's it's a very a very cool report that they've gotten. It's linked in our Facebook group for people to check out and read. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this a fair amount with, with this issue with makeup and and how. It's almost striking when people get it right. Mm-hmm. It's um like like I've I've actually had a, a joyful moment the past couple of days. One of my good friends started watching Lovecraft Country. Okay, so like we got to watch him experience Lovecraft Country in real time, mm-hmm. and and you know we of course had a whole conversation about the character Ruby. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and you and I have talked about it, and we talked about it on on the the Tribbles podcast, where you think about and I forget the actress's name. It just slipped my mind. What's what's the actress's name that plays Ruby? Uh, oh, um, I know she's what? No, that's not Journey Smollett's character, is it? No, no, no. She's Letty. She's a sister, right? Ruby's her sister. Yes, I don't yeah. I don't know the actress, but she's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, but that would... is. Uh, she's played. Hold, hold on, Vince, real quick, because I'm, I'm gonna get a name. Uh, Wumi Musaku. I wanted to make, get it right. There's no way Wumi Musaku looks as beautiful as she does five years ago on another set. Yeah, like like I think that is a testament to the makeup, to the lighting, to the attention that's paid to featuring brown skin the way it should be featured, and mm-hmm. and it is. It's striking. And it makes you realize how badly most people do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very true. Um, uh, Marcellus, you who uh, um, come to us by way of Scribe Video Center, which is a place where emerging and experienced media artists could gain access to the tools and knowledge of video making and work together in a very supportive environment. Um, and it's just a very cool spot here in Philadelphia, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is. Go to scribe.org for more information. Love Scribe. Uh, I would imagine that while Scribe is, of course, open to people of all colors and all races, everybody's welcome at Scribe. Yes. But I would imagine that the depiction of black people, you probably hear that being bantied around the center more than more than a, a little bit as far as being an issue with uh, filmmakers and creatives. Yeah, I mean, working at Scribe, you really get a sense of um, the aesthetics, like the materiality mm-hmm. of film and, um, you know, not to rush things. And, and it does come down to how blackness is portrayed across screen, but also like and I think we'll probably get into this with the landlord, but also black spaces and black agency and black perspective. And how do we do that ethically? Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's it's really been a really working there has really uh, introduced me to a lot of things I did not think about before uh, in terms of film. Now, exactly what is your your role there at Scribe and how did you uh, uh, this Baltimore boy come come <laughs> to find your way in the halls of West Philadelphia's Scribe Video Center? Um, So I am the program manager at Scribe, and so I'm kind of responsible for all the scheduling. Um, We kind of, we do about 30 uh, workshops plus a year, uh, really geared towards uh, teaching uh, 
production or anything that deals with technology as a use for social and progressive change, uh, which mm-hmm. I just I just love the mission. Um, and so I kind of plan the workshops as well as the screenings. We do about 10 screenings that are local as well as international. Um, and we're really just a resource for like the community of Philadelphia if you want to learn how to tell your story in any type of way. Uh, and I would say I did not come to scribe from the film world. I'm actually from the art world, I would say. Um, mm. I'm from mm. Baltimore. Uh, and then after I went to Lincoln. Uh, so oh, I'm, nice. I'm very Philadelphia is kind of like my college town a little bit. Uh, and then after graduating, I moved to New York and I was working at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, oh, nice. F- for five years. And um, I'm an artist. And at one point, I was like, I was working in development. And I was like, I don't want to fundraise anymore. I'd rather, you know, pursue my art career. And uh, I moved to Detroit uh, for grad school. And I, I started, I guess a part of my art practice is video and collaging. So I love film. I did like a video collage based off of Vivica Fox, Six Degrees of Separation of Vivica Fox, like, I don't know, like 10 years ago. Wow. Um, and so I'm really interested in like how <laughs> the portraying of like blackness and like how these like there's enter these these actresses and how like uh, well, Vivica Fox specifically, but also just like this landscape or network of of, of blackness across the screen. Um, Why Vivica Fox particularly? Uh, I don't. I just love Vivica Fox. I mean, she's just like, there ain't nothing wrong with that, bro. I was about to say, that's that's a good reason. (laughs) She's just like, she embodies, like, in so many of her roles, like, uh, this connection of, like... You see, like, his back teeth. Huh? (laughs) Right? You see, like, your back teeth. Like, your whole whole mouth is showing. Like, your tonsil is like, it's Vivica, it's Vivica. (laughs) Yes, it's, it's like she's played, like, she played in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill... I mean, mm-hmm. she's played in like um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and then, but also at the same time, like Two Can Play That Game, Set It Off. Like, I feel like there's a, I feel like she's underappreciated <laughs> in terms of her skill level, and she has not, she was not, or she, she has not been given the opportunity to like really showcase her breath in the same way of like, I don't know, Angela Bassett or like Meryl Streep. Um, right. All right. But, yeah, and then I and then that's how I, I just love media and film, and so um, I did like a community film project on dance shows in Detroit. Is um, that the four nine two zero three dance show? Yes, yes, yeah. I watched that. Yes, <laughs> did you? Um, I saw saw that on your website. It needs some, it needs some work, it, but I, I that was a really it really changed my practice and like thinking about how media can work with communities. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I kind of, I've, I love the new dance show, and I love the archive that's on YouTube. If you're not familiar with the new dance show, please look it up. Um, okay. And, okay. And, uh, I mean, Detroit has several dance shows within, de- within that has happened within, like, the 80s and the 70s. Um, and so, just loving how it was done, I got a grant, and I was able to use that grant to kind of showcase my love and try to like invite the community to kind of recreate that experience of like dancing in a space in public. Um, And ever since then, I've been really trying to get back to like, how can I work with communities and media in a way? And uh, the opportunity at Scribe came along and uh, Scribe's mission is really geared towards community-based media 
and storytelling. So uh, that's how I arrived here. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. All and, right. and, and it, if, as I may say, um, you know, peek behind the curtains, and Marcel is, is I guess, kind of like my boss at Scribe. <laughs> because. Oh, not, not oh. <laughs> I am the person that emails you and contacts you for things <laughs> that I need. <laughs> uh, um, he, uh, you know, he, he asked me to, you know, hey, do you want to do another podcast workshop? I was like, sure. So, so, and uh, and then he let me know that he wanted to talk about Tyler Perry on the Michelle Mission. I was like. Uh, you gotta earn your way to Tyler Perry, bro. <laughs> Don't worry, I will. I will. I'm writing. I have my own ideas and thoughts. We can wait for that for a little bit. I mean, but I was gonna say about um, how, how we were talking about makeup and hair, and right. um, how easy it is to see when it goes bad. And I was like, actually, like sometimes black studios, Tyler Perry does not get it right. His wig selections, no. and a lot of his characters, no. I mean, well, it, except thinks- for Medea. Like, Medea's wig is beautiful. <laughs> I'm I not mean, even joking. Like, look at, look at Medea's makeup versus everyone. I'm 100, being 100% serious right now. Like, when you look at Medea's makeup and her hair, it's like, well, it, it lo- it's like a billionaire's character. Did. It looks like she's the character that launched a billion-dollar empire. Well, it, and then everybody else true. looks like Shamar Moore. Right, with cornrows, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, he has famously said he does not, you know, see the value to spending money on, like, a $50, $60 wig for somebody um, or anything like that. He... He's he's basically put it out there, you know. Yeah, I mean well, that. Yeah. I was gonna say that drives home how I think that he is very much rooted in camp, but he does not want to admit it. But hmm, <laughs> mm. okay, all right. That's a conversation for another. Episode, I was about to gentlemen. say that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation that now see, suddenly I want to have. See, <laughs> you know, this is what happens, Vince. This is this is, see. Another peek behind the curtain, ladies and gentlemen. Vince is very selective about the people who come on as guests. So when you have, so if you are on as a guest, that means Vince has checked you out and said, <laughs> "Okay, he's given the okay." But he's also selective about it because he knows what happens is that someone will come on. He's he's vetted them. They sound like they're okay. We'll get in a conversation. And the next thing you know, Vince wants to have them back. Hey, can they come back next week? Can they come back the week after that? He just right. wants to keep having right. conversations. With like, you. let's let's talk about some other stuff. But <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. But I guess we should talk about the movie. We should talk about the movie, Vince. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into our review of 1970s The Landlord. We'll be right back with our movie review after we step to these messages. Enders never had the chance to live in a slum, so he bought one. Bonton Heights, that's his official name, will start a trend in urban renewal, Mr. Enders. This neighborhood's going to be very chic, very chic. 
Let's hope this influx of the uh, beautiful people is the beginning of an inclination. What is this we had? Yeah! I'm the algorithm. the new landlord. You call us right there. Are you the new landlord? I own this house. I'm the new landlord. You have until the count of three. I am the new landlord. These arrows have been dipped in Fanny's barbecue sauce. Cigarette pops? Like it, I made my son. I haven't just got to meet you. Hi. I'm, uh, I'm Elgar Enders. My name's Lainey. William Jr. Oh, William Jr. Uh, Peter, are you with Vista? Is this some sort of a new program or something? No, no, no. That's Elgar. You think I'm white, don't you? This real estate is very important to me. It's the most important thing I've ever done. I'm a Cancerian, and home is very important. You're a Leo. No, Mother, I'm a, I'm a Cancer. When were you born? The roof leaks, the toilet runs all day. I'm gonna put in a patio already. Right? <laughs> My, it's hot in here. It's really cool, Mr. Anders. You awful cute to be a landlord. Oh, we're, uh, insecticide and deodorant. Is that carbonated? Oh! He's just ruthless. He's ruthless. Napalm. You can get it those hops a little better if you take your gloves off. I think there's something that you should know, Mother. What's that, dear? I think I love a girl who's a Negro. Didn't we all go together to see guess who's coming to dinner? No, dear, I'm going to come straight to the point. If you march into this house with an armful of picking in his the best you're going to be able to expect from me will be a swift kick. The Mirage Production Company presents The Landlord. Okay? Okay! Starring Pearl Bailey as March, Diana Sands, Lee Grant, and Bo Bridges as The Landlord. So, I bought this house. The Landlord, a 1970 American comedy drama film directed by Hal Ashby, adapted by Bill Gunn of Ganja and Hess. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. From the 1966 novel by Kristen Hunter, the film stars Bo Bridges in the lead role of a privileged and ignorant white man who selfishly becomes landlord of an inner city tenement, unaware that the people he is responsible for are low-income, streetwise residents. Also in the cast, Lee Grant, Pearl Bailey, Lou Gossett Jr., and the eternal Diana Sands. This film, Hal Ashby's first feature film as a director was Marcellus Armstrong of Scribe Video Center's choice for our viewing and our review on the Michaud mission. Marcellus, what say you of The Landlord? Uh, I I love The Landlord. Uh, I was introduced to The Landlord through Hilton Owls in his book, White Girls. Um, mm. and I was reading that book and he references it. He references a whole bunch of different references. And so like, I decided to check it out. I love the film. Um, I was not familiar with how Ashby's work, but I love the editing and the most about the film. Um, mm. and I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for some good editing. Some people would critique that it might be over edited and I'd, I'd be willing to really discuss that. Um, I, the cast is amazing. Um, the soundtrack is amazing. Uh, I have, mm-hmm. I have a, f- I was trying, the thing is that, like, when we're reviewing our critique, I'm trying to find, like, ways that I could really be critical about it. And so I I have some critiques about it, you know, mainly, 
always trying to use a white vehicle as a as a way to explore blackness and some other ideas. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a great film. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, there are many people who agree, even though the the box office at the time does not bear that out. Um, you said that you were introduced to this film when you you first watched watched the film. What were your first thoughts upon um, checking out this film and what it had to say about the black experience in 1970? I, I really appreciate the the moments where there's like this kind of subconscious or dream space that's kind of happening. Out of, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's it's not. I mean, sometimes you feel like it's Elgar's, like what's going on through his mind, but then there's other moments where it, it's not the case. And I think right. one of my my favorite scene is um, when he has they have the rent party for getting paying mm-hmm. Elgar the rent, and in that moment, right. like he's getting drunk, he's dancing with Diana Sands, and then he I guess he he gets blackout drunk, and then there's this moment where there's like this collage of uh, people within the neighborhood talking about blackness. And mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, I, the whole monologue. Yes, and I love mm-hmm. that. I I love that part. I, I think it's so beautiful and so um, and it really a testament to how the film um, would not be the film without Bill Gunn's. Uh, there it is. Screenwriting like that's without that the film would not be what it is without Bill Gunn and really sticking to that script um, because that's. I, Oh, keep it going. Yeah. No, no, no. Please, you go. You go. They I was, just, talk I, I was just gonna go. say, like, I was reading. I was trying to look for the script, and reading the script is almost kind of like a poem because those moments where it like cuts in between what is going on from the day to day dialogue. He Bill Gunn wrote in the exact like those moments where it cuts to that dream space, and so yeah. I felt like that was really interesting to kind of read the script and then actually see that come through the with the film. There was a, 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 a line in that in that scene which you're talking about where, you know, he's all drunk and and everybody's very accepting of him at this rent party. Um, but ultimately, as the, you know, the liquor and, and whatnot starts to flow and every, people want to speak their mind to him and they start talking to him about, you know, being black in America. And there's one line someone says to him. The uh, you white screaming about uh, miscegenation and you done watered down every race you ever hated. How about that? How about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yo. (laughs) Yeah. I want that on a T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think this is a film. I think this this dare I say is a great film. I think this film has great bones. Like I think the, like I I do like how Ashby's direction. Um, I think this cast is fantastic. I think this cast is fantastic. We, you know, we've talked about, you know, Bo Bridges. I think Bo Bridges has a difficult job for a modern audience, because as you said, this is very much, at least initially one of these white, fish out of water and mm-hmm. then the blacks kind of provide the the you know pardon the pun color mm-hmm. so that to modern eyes this is a character that we would be dismissive of and or find insulting 
but Bo Bridges brings such great humanity and humor to it mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible to hate him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marky Bay, who we know from Sugar Hill, that like that's the only thing Lynn and I have ever talked. But Marky Bay is really good in this. Louis Gossett Jr. does is not in the film a whole lot, but the part that he's in, he's really good. We talked uh, during the break about Pearl Bailey, and, and Lynn said that Pearl Bailey looked young. And then I said, and she's actually not that young. And the reason I said that is because, in my mind, Pearl Bailey was always a lot. Like, just, just a lot of personality. Okay. And I like her a little older. Because it's it, like she, she, it takes her down just a Maybe notch. slowed down a little bit. Slows down just enough that I like her. And what I realized is that I wanted a two-woman play with Pearl Bailey and Lee Grant. Yes. yes. Who's always right? good. Like Lee Grant. So this cast is fantastic. You mentioned the soundtrack, Al Cooper and, and the state, you know, the music is fantastic. But like you, I actually came at it from the other direction where now I'm kind of curious to read the novel mm-hmm. because Bill Gunn's script is 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 amazing. Talking about things that we've talked about here on the show, I'll speak for Lynn. We are huge fans of Ganja and Hess. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what made Ganja and Hess such an experience is this almost dreamlike quality that it has. And you see that in the landlord, in these sequences, like you like you talked about the sequence at the party. I love this ongoing kind of hallucinatory scene of this classroom. Yeah. And and it yeah. doesn't really land until the end. And you realize what's going on with the classroom. I love the use of white space and whiteness as a color with the, the white people. And how that works. And 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 then, you know, frankly, I love the fact that it subverts this 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 sort of um this type of movie. Like like this is a type of movie where the white guy comes to the ghetto and and things happen, then he learns a lesson, and then he kind of goes off and he's a better person. But the last 20 minutes of this film where you really deal with the repercussions of his actions. He's still and, a and, and yes. he, you know what, Lynn, you, you and I were, were, we were joking when it was just me and you. And, and, and I joked about the fact that, well, we're doing better than Lewis Gossett Jr. Who, whose wife got pregnant from Bo Bridges and it drove him crazy. And you said, you know, it takes two to tango and it does take two to tango. But it's sort of like the old saying about the bear. Like, even if you're playing with a bear, you end up getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And Bo Bridges, like Elgar, just being in this world, his very presence is disruptive. Yes. And dangerous. And I love how the film shows it, that even when he's, you know, not trying to be a bad guy, just him being there disrupts this community so i ended like i liked the movie for about an hour and then like i said the last 20 25 minutes i said oh this is something special so well i thought it was actually something special before then because um 
you know, and I'd be willing to have the conversation with you, Marcellus, as far as whether or not this film is over edited or not. Um, I, I think I land that it's not, it's ultimately not over edited because I think I know what, how Ashby was going for with it. Um, I would argue whether or not it's his best editing job on it, mm-hmm. as far as whether or not how smooth the 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 edit is. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll, I'll have that argument, but 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 because of the way it, the story is told, I could see some people maybe not it 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 turning some people off the film a little bit because it it does go. From sometimes being more of a, a straight-on story to more of a dream sequence to then more satirical, where you have mm-hmm. you know something happen and then the the film cuts to somebody in a totally different place making some type of reaction to what happened mm-hmm. before coming back. You know, so I could see that maybe throwing some people off. I'm with it. Um, and especially in 1970s, I think that level of storytelling editing was only just becoming the vogue. So not your, your average moviegoer is not caught on to that language of film yet. Yeah. So it, it, mm. it, it could definitely be jarring for them. Um, that notwithstanding, I still think it's a great film. I love the subversion that you were talking about, Vince, in that this movie is perfectly set up for it to be the white guy goes into like the, the the ghetto, you know, tenement and then meets wild and crazy people. Yet Mm -hmm. what I appreciate is that the people in this tenement who are decidedly, you know, of the street of their neighborhood of that time, but they are more human than his family. His family are the cartoon right, characters. Yes. Right, right. His, yeah. His yeah. family are the buffoons. His mm-hmm. families are the ones that are oblivious to everything that is going mm-hmm. on. They and 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 it is their privilege that is actually ratcheted up to eleven. To, to use Spinal Tap turns um, in this film so that it is almost laughable. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and I appreciated that because that one, I think, helps you helps you feel for Bo Bridges' character, help you feel for Elgar, help you uh, relate to him at least a little bit because you realize, oh, he's coming from these knuckleheads. So he's the most sane of a whole bag of nuts. Um, And it kind of waters down the fact that he is still, first and foremost, a bit of a jerk. So, and is a jerk throughout the movie but you kind of like now he's like man but he's a lovable little jerk until he he i mean let's face it you you want to feel for him but at the end of the day he sleeps with a married woman and he sleeps with a married woman after having already started a relationship with someone else 
who he only stepped to because he thought she was white in the midst of blackness only yeah. to, be, to have, you know, be called out because she actually is just high yellow. So now she's she who is dealing with colorism at her work has to deal with this from a dude, but he finds some way to to get her. I don't I didn't see that turn. I don't I don't see how that happened, but it happened. Um He's he's a jerk, and he's a jerk the the, the whole rest of of the movie. Um, it is only you talk about the last twenty minutes. It's only really the last five minutes that he gets any type of um, you know uh, reclamation of of who he is once the baby is born. I mean, is he a jerk or is he just oblivious in his privilege? Uh. And is that the same thing? <laughs> I I don't know if he's a I don't I don't think there's room for being oblivious. I mean he's 29. I mean I guess I think he's Elgar, 29 years old. Right at home. And I, I I guess I think I think for me Elgar is a, an f boy, a trifling. Um, and I was and I was thinking I was thinking like who does this remind? And I was like this reminds me of and it's like a late coming of age story in the same way of Jody is and Baby Boy, where it's like, uh, where, okay. it's like where it's just you're like punch, you're pushing all the buttons, all the Michelle buttons, Marcellus. But but then again, but little then, Elgar, little but, Elgar. But then it's just like, but then I mean, Joji's character is endearing, but also at the same time, he's also like Piper from Orange Is the New Black, but not as annoying. So right, right. I mean, I just. <laughs> There's so many things to contend with, but it's just like I have to forgive him because it's like he is learning a, a lot, but then at the same time, I, a lot of his obliviousness, like in, in today's time, like if he had done a lot of those things and voiced it through Twitter, he would be canceled. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. I love the line. I love the line that I and uh, Marky Bay plays. I think her her character is Jamie or Amy, Laney. something like that. Laney, Laney, Laney. Uh, mm-hmm. When 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 they are meeting each other, and I guess she's falling for him in some strange way. Um, I mean, it's a nice date. They have a nice date. I like that. It's a scene nice date, but in dude, the restaurant, but yeah. dude, but dude, in the midst of that date, they have this exchange, Laney. So you're 29 years old and you still live at home, <laughs> Elgar. Well, it's a big house. It's a big house. Laney. Laney. It ain't that big. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't see where the love connection is made there. I didn't see the love connection in the first meeting when you're dancing and then he's like, oh, you're do- you must be doing this for like charity or something. I don't know what, what he said. And I'm just like, <laughs> right, but right. She, she, yeah, she keeps on going. Here on, like, on a work visa or work release or something. Like- <laughs> and it's like, it's just like, and then you keep, like, I would have been done with the conversation, but she has a very, she's very forgiving. <laughs> And I suspect it's not the first time she's had this type of conversation. And that and that actually made me question at the end. I was like, I don't think they live happily ever after. But then after we're talking about Lainey's character and how forgiving she is, maybe she, maybe they do live happily ever after. I mean, or 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 at least they make a go of it. I mean, even the way she says, "Oh, just come on in," like that wasn't like he didn't sweep her off her feet. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, like that that you know. Five hey, years from now, 
We we we've but we we've seen this story as far as as far as black women. Remember nothing uh, nothing but a man. Uh, yes, a guy has a, a baby with someone else, and now his black woman is the one. Yes, okay, bring him home. And Look, we'll we'll do what we got to do. You talking about nothing like a man? It's that great scene in Fences, right? It's right. the great scene in Fences. And she says, you know, I'm going to take care of this baby, but you are no longer welcome. Well, so, Lainey didn't say that. Lainey didn't say, <laughs> or or at least not when the credits roll. Like, all we know is that I'm, I'm with Marcellus. Like, the movie ends. We don't know what ends up, you know, a year from now. Right. But, but I, I really do have to circle back. I thought the last 20, 25 minutes were extraordinary. How the film really stops and breathes and and lets us see the repercussions of his actions i mean you know as you said um diane sands like it, there were two people in that room but this really was this disruption of this family and, and when diane sands makes the declaration that she's going to put the baby up for adoption and and she wants Elgar to sort of take, you know, take lead with it. And she tells him, but just make sure the baby is raised white. You know, I want him to grow up casual mm. like his daddy. And there's mm -hmm. such venom in there. Yeah. And it's, but, but that's casual is such a great word for Elgar. Like he just sort of goes through life kind of nestled in his privilege doing all this stuff. And I'm going to keep using the word disruptive like he just disrupts this whole community on a whim because he's looking for an apartment <laughs> and i i think that that i was i, I was really thinking about that cat that casual line as well and i think what is um i guess the attraction but because i was really trying to think about like why diana like diana sand's character would be like you know you have a whole like you know why it even risk it all him, right? yeah but right. then i was also just like it's they had that conversation on the couch where he was talk she was talking about her husband Kopi and how Kopi wants her to be more black. And then his mm -hmm. and then his response is that that's ridiculous, you're beautiful. And so in that moment it's just like I think the part of casualness is that you don't have to, you know, concentrate on color. You don't have to exist in the world where like every everything you encounter has to do with like how you look by appearance. And so I was yeah. kinda thinking that like Laney was gravi toward, gravitating toward like this kind of freedom of casualness, and mm, yeah. Well, well, the film really does that. I mean, there's that great. And you want to talk about collage and editing and sequences? It's that great moment where Elgar goes out to to the sun to Diane Sand's son, and or goes to the school, and he's taking black kung fu, and they're down there training for war. And what the, and Elgar thinks that the boy should be rolling down the hill because in frolicking, because to Elgar, that's what kids do. They roll down the hill and they frolic. And the two scenes that you have, you have that wonderful black Kung Fu scene. And then you have the scene with the school at the end where oh, yeah. the message is black kids can't do that. Like black kids have to get ready for this world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I want you to raise him white so he can be casual, like his daddy. 
uh, uh, Deborah Battle said that uh, her favorite scene was actually that classroom scene. At it's a great end, scene. Uh, end of the movie where he um, goes to uh, Melvin Stewart's classroom, um, and he and he went there. In like he's kind of like been mocking uh, uh, Mel Stewart's uh, character throughout the film. Right, because, another you know, great actor. Another great uh, uh, character actor, mm-hmm. um, because he says like he's a professor and like you know he's mocking a professor of what? What are you teaching these kids and everything like that? And then when he actually then goes to the the school and sees how educated and worldly these and and you know this is not a high school. These these are you know like they pro- maybe six, seven, eight years old kids. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, oh yeah. That are was were speaking eloquently and intelligently uh about mathematics, about, you know, uh social social studies and I don't mean just, you know, like Germany is over here. You know, no, they're talking about like politi- politics and everything like that. And he he just couldn't even imagine it because juxtapose against uh the 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 other classroom scenes that you said that are interspersed in the film, which is the white class and a white teacher asking, "How do right. we live?" Mm-hmm. You know, the, the these students, and you never you never really get the answer because you see it in in the privilege that he displays and his family displays, uh, yeah. as opposed to yeah. how life has to be when you are black, even from a young age. And- yeah. And that question of like, how do we live? And then in the other, the classroom scene at the end, the question is like, what is relative knowledge? And so, mm. and so like just those two, how do we live versus relative knowledge? It's like, I think they also kind of give this vehicle for like, life is relative to what you know. And if you don't step out of those boundaries, you won't, it'll, it'll just be um, kind of a sheltered existence, uh, but also just in terms of relativity, relativity and knowledge and, um, I don't know where I was going with that. Anyway, um, it's cool. It's cool. I yeah, want to go. Yeah. I want to go back in in the the room with uh, with Diana Sands and Bo Bridges' character Elgar, and Diana Sands' character is Fanny, I believe. Yeah, because yes. she's called Francine. Yeah, they call her right, Fanny. right, right. Um, and in that scene, I thought first of all. If if people are lost and and let's face it, you know, time has lost the power of what Diana Sands brought to the screen. Right. Oh, she's yeah. A woman. This film is 1970. She's a woman who tragically passes away in 1973. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And while she did some work, you know, at the time of her passing, probably the vehicle of her dream is presented to her on her door on her on her lap in to be the star of um claudine yeah she's oh yeah uh, unfortunately it's just it's too ill to take on the role um so then it goes to diane carroll um and watching this movie we talked about it uh during trailer talk that wow you could really see her she would have been perfect Claudine. Yeah, she, she, she would have been magnificent. And I love Diane Carroll and Claudine, but but I think Diana Sands yes. would have been magnificent. Mm-hmm. She would have been magnificent. But in yes. the scene between the two of them, Fanny and Elgar, I liked the use 
of it's all in red mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. to me, one that just adds to the you know the the intimacy of the moment mm-hmm. because you can you can definitely feel it it it's intimate um even though they're basically talking about he he got sick at the party and she's giving him medicine to get uh to get well um and then they have a conversation about her life um but i also like the the use of the red light because it saps all of the color out of the light the out of the room and they just become two people in the room mm-hmm. and they just two become two people sharing in this experience um and the uh the wistfulness and kind of like wanderlust that is on Diana Sands, you know, words when she talks about how she was voted Miss Sepia of 1957. It's the same thing as Miss America, but with color. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think it is just it is just um, just such a magical moment. I I. I actually stopped and rewound just that little bit. I just wanted to hear her say that again. Um, yeah. And and kudos to Bo Bridges, like you said, uh, Vince, who is an actor, let's face it, who time has kind of forgotten in light of his more famous brother, you know, uh, Jeff mm-hmm. Bridges. But he is doing some yeoman work in that scene because he is just being a listening partner for her, you know? Uh he is knows that this is her moment and, and her moment to shine and it is just a beautiful one-on-one with them um and while i do say i said that it takes two to tango because this is where the the baby is consummated but you understood her talking about her husband lou gossett and how mad he is and he's going through identity issues he was indian for two years and he's got part jewish in him and all the he's he's going a little bit bit crazy um and looking at that trophy which her mom had turned into a lamp she sees what you know what her life maybe could have been i just thought that was just a really really great scene um it's just it's just magnificent. Uh, Di- Diane uh, Deborah Battle uh, tells me that Diane Sands actually told the producers of Claudia oh, yeah. to hire Diane Carroll for the role. When oh she yeah, couldn't, couldn't take it on. Yeah, I mean, even, plug out. Go ahead, Marcellus. I was just, yeah. I was just, I was just going to say that even Diane Sands' character Franny, she just seems very very at like very assured of what she's doing in every move. I, I feel like. They're really Kopi really relied in terms of the relationship, Kopi really relied on her like that was that is her that is Kopi's rock in the relationship mm. and that really comes through in terms of the character. Like she knew I feel like she was in terms of her agency, she knew that she wanted to have relations with Elgar, um really within the first scene. And then it kind of really? yeah. I feel like yeah. in the first scene it's like if there's a are you you're pretty cute for a landlord. And so Yeah. I think I think she very much is like it wasn't a mistake. She knew what she wanted. I feel like, and then I thought I see. I read that in that at first scene because she comes in uh, into Marge's Pearl Bailey's 
you know, apartment where she's talking to the landlord and she doesn't immediately know he's the landlord. So she's railing at him. And then once she learns he's the landlord, then she tried, tried to kind of flip it <laughs> and kind of maybe like flirt with him a little bit, especially because she's going to realize he, he's going to pull out his ledger and see that she was four months late on the rent. Four <laughs> months yeah, yes. you, you you best to be flirting. Oh, yeah, you cute. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I actually agree with you that she knew exactly what she was doing in the scene where she sleeps with the Bow Bridges. I, I think where where I I really look at Bow Bridges is that he knew what he was doing, but you don't get the sense that he understood the implications and the repercussions of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Like almost oh, certainly. Yeah. Like, again, back to that wonderful half hour. I thought the scene where he's in the apartment and he's just sort of real haphazardly playing house. And he's sitting in the chair and she brings him the ice cream. And you can tell he's completely oblivious mm-hmm. to what has happened, how he is coming to this man's house. He's taking this man's chair. You know, he's watching, you know, I forget what game show they're watching. But in the background... You see Diana Sands and her son, and there, and you can tell they understand what's going on. And again, Bo Brit, you know, he's just sort of oblivious. He's just sort of, you know, this A is jerk. this is well, and this is this is another part of my Negro adventure. But, and I, th- I think that it's not just um, Diana Diana Sands' character or the son. I think. A lot of the characters knew how to play game on Elgar, particularly Pearl Bailey. Mm. I, she has mm-hmm. like the whole scene when the mother comes to visit and Pearl Bailey takes her up to her apartment, gets her drunk, and then swindles yes. her out of her card. It's a great scene. <laughs> it's just like all of these these characters know how to play the game, particularly with whiteness in the room. It's like oh. Right, I can right. use this as a bargaining chip. I mean, even even um, Marky Bay's character, like she showed, like as soon as she hooked Elgar, she quit that job. <laughs> <laughs> like as soon as right. he dropped her off, and then and then they even like, oh, don't think you can get away just because you got some blue eyed da 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 da. And it's just like, oh yeah, you're right. I can actually quit this job, and I'm sure I can probably like, yeah. So I feel like there's this exchange going on. But I had the question of, like, who was using who? Like, is right. Elgar using, unknowingly, like, you know, coming into this, uh, the this because uh, I also feel like, I'll get back to this in a second, but I also feel like Elgar, I feel like the thing that this movie does that I think is also really, truly beautiful is that this fiction turned into fact. And so if you look at Park Slope now, it is exactly... How about that? Gentrification. And so within the film, Elgar knew that like, oh, this is going to be the spot that I should buy an apartment now or buy a townhouse now because it's going to be, you know. And then there's that scene where it's like, oh, eviction powder comes into the room. And so Mm. it's like he's using this community because, you know, it's going to be some use of value and he can get it for cheap now. But at the same time, he doesn't realize that like, you know, the black people within the community know how this works and can get what they want out of it. And then at the end, at the end when he's like going into his car and Pearl Bailey's looking at the window and it's not as nice or friendly as she was in the other films, I'm like, she totally knew what she was doing the whole time. Yeah, it's a beautiful shot of her. It's a beautiful shot of her, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much that tenement is, goes for now? <laughs> oh. That, that tenement, oh. 
That tenement has been changed, uh, has been uh, broken down into three condos, and now goes for $3.5 million. Per condo? I'm assuming. No, I think for, oh, the, whole for the whole building. thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Now, now, real quick, real quick. In regards to that that great scene that Aaron Fry um, championed and you too, Marcellus, between Lee Grant and Pearl Bailey, um, I would not be surprised. Lee Grant was actually Love nominated for an Academy Award for supporting actress because of her role in this movie. I wouldn't. I would not doubt if they just sent this scene because it yeah. it, it, it is masterfully done. I gotta ask. Maybe it's a New York thing, maybe, but maybe it's a Baltimore thing. Maybe it's just something I never heard of. Were either of you familiar with pot liquor? I'm familiar with pot yes. liquor. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone drink it out of a glass like that. Like I've seen people eat it kind of like a broth. Right. Yeah. But I I didn't know it was called pot liquor though. Oh yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard, yeah. pop, I've heard pot liquor. I mean, I haven't, I haven't had it. Um, I, 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 I did not know pot liquor is the liquid that is left behind after boiling greens or beans, and sometimes seasoned with salt, right. pepper, smoked pork. See, I, and you know I the irony know is they give it. Well, they juice. No, no, no. It's the pot liquor, but they give it to people who are sick or weak. You know, it's kind of like a broth because you know a lot of us when we cook the greens down, like you cook them down for thirty-seven yeah. hours. Right, All the right, nutrients right. are in the pot liquor. Mm. Oh, really? So that's actually the healthy part. Really? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know ham hocks could be. I mean, I just usually know ham hocks are in the greens. I don't actually eat ham hocks, but for the C Pro Bailey, just eat the ham hocks and then put three. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Lee Sands bag. <laughs> yeah, for Lee Grant to just walk away, just put them in the bag with, with a <laughs> bag of, with. She said you liked him so much. I wasn't. She said you liked him so much. (laughs) It looked good though. I ain't gonna. Hey, look. She poured. She poured a wine. She's like, is this? Is this? Is this bubbly? Is this? (laughs) She says it carbonate. She said no. It's ruthless. She said no, but it's ruthless. I'm telling you, this script. This script. Is amazing. <laughs> Bill Gunn, man. Love it. Oh my God. Aaron Fry says that uh, his grandma drank pot liquor with a dash of Tabasco sauce. There you go. Uh, and Robert Monroe uh, said, I always drink the pot liquor in a glass after I cook my greens. It's right. like a liquid multivitamin. Y- yes. I've never seen people drink it out of a glass like that, but I've heard, you know, people talk about the medicinal uses of it. A liquid multivitamin. I mean, I think that's what it is. Get out of here. Yeah, I'll I'll just keep on taking my Flintstone chewables. Thank you. (laughs) So here's the question, though, appropriately enough. Is this a black movie? Marcellus? I would say yes. I, I had the same question as well. I mean, I would, I, I would even say it's like you would question if Color Purple is a black movie um, mm. in, the, in, in kind of the same way. And I'll say yes because here's why I think the dream spaces are those moments of subconscious are integral to the film because 
they try to it's i mean as much as it is about the characters that really drive the movie home i think the tenement and park slope at that time is a character in itself and i think Mm -hmm. and i think in order for the the movie to really be the way that it is hal ashby knew that he had to capture the the neighborhood and the experience of being within blackness in a black neighborhood and the you authenticity can't, of it, yeah, yeah, and you, right, and you right. can't you can't do that visually in a way. Um, you can't capture the sensory experience of a, it's very hard to capture a sensory experience of a moment through film. Like that time when you're at a family cookout and everybody gets on a line dance and you're like, oh, I just love black people. Or like, mm-hmm. or like certain like or, or like uh, for me, it's like going to the Woodward in Detroit where it's like the last black gay bar in Detroit, and it's like whenever I'm there. It's like, oh, this is this is why I this is this is my blackness and I love it and I appreciate it. And so mm-hmm. that is very hard to capture across screen. And and so I think that the editing and the script alone um, do that really well where they capture um because honestly, like the tenement is run down. He's like, I want to get out all the fit, the uh, get out all the levels and the walls and take things out. And that's not why he falls in love with the place. He falls in love with the place because of the people that are in it and the people that inhabit yeah. it. And and that's what is really worth um, everything. And so I think I think being able to I think um, you were able to really see that through uh, the film. So I do think it is a very black film. Um, I just want to push back a little bit. When you said that uh, he falls in love with his, with the tenement because of the people in there, are you speaking about Elgar or are you speaking about Hal Ashby? I'm speaking oh, about... That is a good question. Uh, I'm speaking about Elgar because at the end, mm-hmm. I think he... At the end, he leaves it to... And maybe this is guilt. I, I guess you could argue that it's guilt, but he leaves the tenement to the Kopis. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I also, but also it could be a reckoning that like, you know, I think maybe he's realizing that you can't just come into a space and with a, like tear everything out and act like, you know, there wasn't history there. Um, right. and right. I think that right. he's probably, I think hopefully he's realized that and, um, he could only realize that through really making connection with the people that are in that building. Okay. Okay. All right. I don't think so. I think it's guilt. <laughs> I think it's 100% guilt. Um, uh, and I think he was like, well, this social experiment didn't turn out the way that I, I want it. But I'm going to try to make the, the best of this situation. I now have a baby. Um, and I'm going to try and do the right thing. But I think him leaving them the house was pretty much guilt on his own and uh, his own there was not anything else that he could do for them um you think it's a black movie that being said i do think that it's a black film i do think it's mm-hmm. a black film i think this film is um not the film that it is without these characters without this story without this history i feel um you definitely feel like you're in this place. This film was filmed on, you know, it was filmed on location. It hired many of this, the faces of the neighborhood for the backdrop for the uh, for the extras, as well as in the crew as well. Um, so 
I think that uh, it is a black film, um, <clears throat> and it is a. I, I will also say that I think it's a a film that is very important as a timestamp of this moment mm-hmm. of this time in Black America, more so than you know all of the films that will come that will come out in the wake of this this is 1970 this is it's hard to imagine that this film as gritty as earthy and as realistic as it is is before the black exploitation era you know right you, that's right because the it's after it's kind of like in the midst of black exploitation era as far as black films that you have in hollywood more of your grittier film films that are are coming out mean streets and uh 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 taxi driver and and, and things things of that nature this film predates all of them and and that's why i said that i think that it is as underappreciated as it is one because it is a black film it does speak about the black experience and god knows white people do not want to put their eyes on the black experience at this time that is definitely told in this story by by Elgar's family and two this film predates the language the film language of the 70s how Ashby was a man that was ahead of his time um, in, in that regards uh, once he was able to direct on his own he, he made his bones as an editor mm-hmm. um, but once he was able to direct on his own I think he was uh, ahead of his time in, in many ways and while he had he like Diana Sands unfortunately has a very short resume of films mm-hmm. um, a lot of them are some groundbreaking pieces of work yeah. and I think it's I, all on display right here I'll, I'll make it three for three and I'll approach it this way I I I've I've said earlier that I'm really interested in the novel to see how this film deviates from the novel because my, my instinct and my suspicious suspicion and certainly from what you said, Marcellus about reading the script is that Bill Gunn almost through sheer force of will bent this movie into a different direction. Um, it, it, we, we talked about this with Watermelon Man, the film Watermelon Man, which started out one way and then Melvin Van Peebles basically shifted the narrative so that it centered blackness more. And I think this film does the exact same thing. It's funny, if you look at the advertising for the film, it's a picture of a white finger going to press two two of the of the door buzzers that you see on apartment buildings but the buzzers look like breast Mm -hmm. so it's this finger going towards breast and then it says watch the landlord get his Mm -hmm. so that it's almost like this is going to be a sex romp and you know certainly this white character goes into the jungle has sex with two beautiful black women but like we've been saying the script subverts all of that and and the way bill gunn centers blackness in this in this experience i think turns it into a black film and to your point lynn when when you said do 
do you think Elgar fell in love with this sentiment or do you think Hal Aspie fell in love? I think Hal Aspie very smartly followed Bill Gunn. Mm-hmm. So that so I think this is this is very much a black film. It is very much a black film. Would you recommend that people see this film, Marcellus? I would, especially I was thinking about this in comparison to other films that kind of deal with neighborhoods and gentrification. Last Black Man in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, if you looking at that, but also Residue, which is out on Netflix now, um, mm. also kind of touches on. And, and I think all three of these films have very unique editing styles where they try to really capture the experience of a neighborhood. Um, and so just I, I would definitely recommend seeing this film, particularly in relation to those three or those other two. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I, I also sent a, uh, agree with Robert Monroe's sentiment that this film sounds like it would be an interesting co- addition to the Criterion Collection. And I, to that, I say here, here. Yeah, here. I agree. I would definitely recommend this film. I would definitely recommend this film. It's a great film. It's a great film. And the shame of, well, I mean, I guess it's not a shame. Well, no, I will say it's a shame. It's all available for you, ladies and gentlemen, on YouTube to watch in its full glory. The shame of it is, is that it's up there. It's not streaming any place. It's not, there hasn't been like a remastering of this and digitization of this in any, in any way. Um, Because this is a, this is a film worthy of such treatment and such exploration um there's so many deep dives that you can do in there. i mean we we could just spend we could have done a whole nother podcast on robert klein's character in this movie who appears in blackface like yes yes yeah oh yeah and then blackface, next to marky polk blackface is a what is it a, a dead american hero <laughs> exactly yes yes Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we could do a part two on on, on just the white side of this movie alone. Look, when the film comes on and it's that wonderful sequence of the two men playing squash, Mm -hmm. you know, the white walls and they're wearing white shorts and, you know, and again, just that use of whiteness as a color. That you th- see throughout this, it, it's it's masterful. NAAC, the Elgar's definition of NAACP. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right, and we know we've heard it before. Oh yeah, yes. that was definitely Bill Gunn. That was definitely, yes. definitely Bill oh, Gunn. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You said yeah, keep that in the script. Keep that in yeah. the script. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and God bless Lee Grant because she pulls it off. Um, oh, great! It's a great film. Great film. And uh, thank you uh, in the uh, the missionaries who suggested it, um, Faith Hodge, who actually, uh, Faith Hodge, um, for is the person that suggested it. I believe the first person that suggested it among the missionaries. And thank yes. you, Marcellus. Yes, for yes. Br- thank you. Bringing this. Actually, bringing it to us, yes. No, thank you for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. This has been a really wonderful experience. The highlight of my end of September. Oh, well, good. <laughs> well, there Excellent. You go. well, we're very glad we could do that for you. <laughs> 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, before we tell you what we're going to be reviewing next week, I invite you all, hey, check it out. Beginning in October, the Michelle Mission is going to uh, be doing a newsletter. Yes, an email newsletter from the Michelle Mission will be kicking off on October 1st. And if you want to be a part of that, if you want to receive the newsletter, just let us know. You can either email us at michellemission at gmail.com. Just put newsletter in the subject line so that we know that we are free to add your name to our um, listing. Or an even easier way to do this, ladies and gentlemen, is just go to michellemission.com. And once you go there, a banner will come up asking you to sign up for the newsletter. It will be going out on beginning in October where we will lay out our whole month of scheduled movie reviews and we will preview our brand new swag at um, courtesy of T Public, a new design. I told you I was working on the design and that's where you can check it out on the Michelle Mission newsletter, which is called the Michelle Mission Dispatch because I had to name it something. Um, <laughs> and we've got other special features that'll come your way uh, later in the month. This probably going to do this like about two or three times a month. Um, but it, it's a way for us to continue the conversation with each and every one of you. All right. Uh, just to let you know, the Michelle Mission is available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, any place and every place that you find podcasts, including the Podglomerate curated podcast for your listening pleasure go to thepodglomerate.com for more information you can also listen to the michelle mission as a radio show in a very edited form um real <laughs> edited <laughs> more edited than before based on the notices that we're getting uh, I, I like how you emphasize very <laughs> In an edited form every Saturday at 1 p.m. on WPPM, 106.5 FM, Philly Cam. Philly Cam. Here in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And you can wake up with the Michelle Mission every Monday morning at 9 a.m. You can get up with Marcellus and listen to the Michelle Mission on WKDU 91.7 FM, the voice of Drexel University. And if you really want to help us out, you can like and follow us on all the social medias at Michelle Mission, as well as become a member of the Facebook group Michelle Mission, where we have a lot of fun talking back and forth with the missionaries. All right. October is coming. So that means here on the Michelle Mission, it is time to go boo and do horror movies. Yes, it is. Next week, Vince kicks things off as we go to that magical year of 2014. Yes, yes. We review, speaking of Bill Gunn, speaking of Ganja and Hess, we review Spike Lee's take on that vampire love story, The Sweet blood of jesus the sweet blood of jesus a film i've been curious about since we talked about ganja and hess lo mm-hmm. those many years ago and a film that i frankly have not heard one good thing about <laughs> so i'm so i'm really curious about this film i'm looking forward to it are you familiar like people with are film marcellus i am familiar but i have not seen it <laughs> yeah pe- people are pretty passionate about the sweet blood of Jesus that have seen it. So I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that as well. That will be coming your way next week here on the Michelle mission, ladies and gentlemen. 
If you want to get in touch with Marcellus Armstrong, our fantastic guest tonight from Scribe Video Center, you can go to scribe.org to, to catch up with him. But if they want to be a little bit more personal with you, Marcellus, how can people reach you? You can reach me via email, Armstrong, A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G, uh, period, W-M, at gmail.com. So that is how you can reach me. Feel free to. I am available. All right. All right. All right. Well, thank okay, you, Marcellus. Thank, thank you, brother. You, Vincent. Thank, thank you, Thank you, Lynn. Fantastic. Yes, yes. And uh, I guess you've already booked your, your return trip for... Of Tyler Perry movie of your choice. So. <laughs> I, I will write my thesis and I will send it to you. <laughs> oh, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to checking it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time, he's Vince, I'm Len, and in parting, we say, We'll see you when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>